Hello and welcome to episode 18 of Across the Isle. It's great to have your company. I'm Philip Teal, and across the aisle from me today is my soulmate, Carla Donnelly. How are you, my darling? I'm fantastic. How are you? Very, very well. Great. And look, we're both joined by my other soulmate, Julien Lair. How are you, my second darling? <laughs> I am thrilled to be here. Hooray! Yay. Welcome to Team Isle. It's lovely to have you along, Julien, to give your French perspective on the first of our shows. As always, we are going to talk theatre and the arts in Melbourne with a focus on two productions. Today, that's Nicola Gunn's The Interpreters at Site Is Set 2016. And then Hot Brown Honey, presented by Art Centre Melbourne in association with Briefs Factory. Our trip to the Art Centre was sponsored by a friend of the podcast, Jack Sullivan, as part of our First Birthday Possible campaign. Thank you so much, Jack, for your generosity and for picking out a show with such love. But before we get to Hot Brown Honey, let's take a trip to the Alliance Francaise de Melbourne for The Interpreters. Carla, what drew you to this piece? <laughs> You're so kind, love. Uh, so I'm very intrigued by Nicola Gunn, which we'll sort of delve into, I guess, with the deconstruction of our thoughts about this piece. But uh, yeah, I always try and get along to whatever she's producing. It's very kind of wide and varied, but always along the same lines of why do I make art or what is art? But yeah, very wide and varied execution to that question, which is what this was. So as uh, Philip said, it was at the Alliance de Française and the blurb says, the confrontation of language underlies so many of the problems which we can pose concerning human beings. Performed in English, French, Auslan and Boudoirang, this is a work about the act of interpreting, about changing words into meaning and back again. Set against the backdrop of a French mansion, join Nicola and special guests to untangle and retangle language. So, yes, we had uh, Luke King, who was a deaf artist, and as we found out through the course of the performance, he also translates um, art for uh, deaf people at the Mm. NGV. And we had Mindy Culloch, who was the interpreter, the Auslan interpreter, and we had Faye Muir, who was the local Indigenous. Mindy Culloch actually was the Frenchie in the corner. Oh, Mehdi, I'm in- sorry. Invisible, but audible. Oh, Mehdi, audible. that's right. Yes. Mm. Okay, thank you. So we don't actually have a listing for the Auslan interpreter who was very beautifully dressed. So thank you. <laughs> and had such a great voice. Yes, yes. Wonderful. So we were there in the French mansion and all these people were gathered around the table except for Mehdi, who was in the corner for some reason, <laughs> like a French gimp <laughs> screaming out every now and again. Uh, and the conversation seemed quite loose, although Mady's seemed to be scripted, although I'm sure it was uh, the whole performance was loosely directed mm. in terms of what they wanted to talk about. But really it was just Nicola talking and being translated through several different people about translation, about trying to get ideas across and the issues and joys of that happening. And when you say talking, it really was like you were hanging out with people who were having a chat and we were set up to surround this central table where cheese was being eaten and wine was being drunk and people were essentially just trying to understand each other and talk about whatever came to mind. 
and Nicola Gunn seemed to want to foreground the difficulties of having ideas and discussions when you don't speak the same language as each other. But there was a real sense of alienation and comedy which Nicola Gunn really pushed when she was translated at length into French. She seemed to quickly develop a kind of frustration or annoyance about that so that that old joke of, you know, difference between interpreters and the original speakers leading to a kind of conflict started happening with Mehdi Kaluk in the corner. And Juliana, it must, be, must have been a different type of experience for you as a French speaker, because many people in the room were not, and there was a real sense of confusion. Many deaf people were in the room as well, so they were potentially not even engaging with the fact of those utterances from the invisible person. So how did you find it? Well, one of the things I've been reflecting on is that it's actually quite an isolating uh, experience for me, because I don't know how many people in the room would have been bilingual, probably not the majority. So I had an experience of this show where I was able to understand both what Mehdi was saying and what was happening at the table, which was probably not shared by many people. And I, I don't know if you got that. What started happening is that it translated completely off. I went completely off track in what he was saying. Some of it was extremely funny and probably completely lost on anyone who couldn't understand French. Mm. Which is why you guffawed <laughs> in such a way that Nicola Gunn turned towards you and said, you know, what did he say? Tell me what he said. Did you find that funny? You know, you, you actually became a bit of a focus for a moment there and got interrogated by the performer. I just got ob- absorbed into the conversation. <laughs> <laughs> I was rather unprepared for it and very embarrassed. One of the things that started happening is that what Mehdi was translating or the way I interpreted it is he translated the subtext of the conversation. Mm. And so she was having all this politically correct way of discussing um, the, the culture of deaf people. And he translated as deaf people have no culture whatsoever <laughs> into French, which I then was asked to translate back. And I felt very self-conscious and quite embarrassed about having to do that and really not knowing what my role was. I mean, it was it made me think about what the role of an audience member is uh, when there are potential miscomprehensions between the various people involved in the, in, in the show. Mm. I find it fascinating because it was obviously, you know, quite a blunt metaphor for making art. You know, I have this desire to make this. I don't entirely understand myself and why I do it, but it just comes out of me. And then it is somewhat, you know, comes to life through its interpretation from other people and then it becomes its own thing. So regardless of whether I can, you know, understand myself through it, the way that other people understand themselves through it and their world around them, that's the sort of life that springs from it. So I I really saw that that was what this whole interpretation thing was about. But what I found most interesting about having you there, Julianne, is that you were one of the few people with a position of total power in the audience. Well, apart from the fact that you don't speak Auslan, Mm. but uh, that would have been quite a flip for you because I felt like potentially what a lot of ESL people feel. I was sitting there understanding half the time, not understanding the other half the time, whereas you were understanding the full time and getting this full rounded subtext conversation. Mm. How did that make you, did that make that power exchange make you feel strange, do you think? Well, you know, I won't say that I don't enjoy being in a position of power. <laughs> it's uh, it's not uncomfortable to, to be there. And the thing that was strange after that is that I felt that there was no way for me to share back 
the insights that I had got from being in essentially a, a privileged position to understand all of the subtleties of what was being offered. What also I realized is that this, this was never kind of designed. There was no moment where I was invited or whoever else was in the room was invited to, to, to feed that back to the rest of the audience. Same with the, the people who, were, who could speak Auslan and, and English. And I think Nicola Gunn was more interested in the problem than in finding some kind of solution to it. She seemed to relish those limitations and difficulties of language and wanted to push her co-performer Luke King to acknowledge that he must be frustrated that the subtle gestural ways mm. that he was communicating were not fully getting across. And later in the show, when Faye Muir joined them at the table to t- talk about Bunwarang and the challenges of developing a way of building that language um, had limitations. Fascinatingly for me, though, towards the end of the show, when there were these four languages being exchanged in the middle of the room, there was some suggestion that the French and English languages had something in common and that Auslan and Bunwarang might have some connections as unwritten languages that both lack conjunctions, that find meaning through some of the gaps and silences between words. Mm. And I thought that the thing that was ultimately the most profound for me was to see four different ways of communicating at a table together and to allow for the fact that there might be some connections in some ways, a lack of connection in others, and that ultimately we just sort of muddle our way towards what we experience as understanding. That's actually a very profound point that I didn't pick up on in terms of the unwritten language. But I I think the sweetness in this, I find a lot of her work, like there is a really full-on hardness to it but the sweetness in this was the sort of negative space of all of us sitting there straining to understand in some way and that we were all there together as a part of this thing and yeah and there was a lot of goodwill yes. in the room yeah and um, maybe because of the cheese and wine <laughs> and the beautiful <laughs> the beautiful room one of the things that that struck me and that i found really really smart about the show was how the the position of the interpreter and the role of medi kind of brought forwards um positions of cultural power uh, from dominant cultures and languages because the way i perceived the evolution of his role it started by just interpreting everything and was rejected. Then he started interpreting the subtext and being quite um, explicit. She was kind of talking to um, Luke uh, and he was saying, oh, she's just flirting. Um, uh, yes. But then when she left the room, he started putting on his hat as a French intellectual and explaining at length um, the, the implications of um, the supplement of the Travels of Bougainville, a pivotal work of the French Enlightenment, talking about <laughs> utopia in Tahiti and, oh and the way that uh, first encounters with the Antipodes were received in France, which is an element of cultural understanding, probably also of Australia, that would be very relevant to a French audience, completely unknown or not very received in, in um, say, Anglo cultures. And suddenly you, you could see how these people were in marginal positions of being purely interpreters of the lead speakers might actually hold a depth of cultural references that would be very, very valuable if they were exchanged as part of the conversation. Mm. But this is only made possible when the lead person leaves the room to Mm. do something else. Fascinating. And to be given that space, Mm. albeit, 
you know, because she's left, like not on purpose, you mm. know. Mm. So I'm fascinated because, you know, you work a lot in interpretation. You're not a professional interpreter, but you work in the, man- the Mandarin community and the French community and obviously, you know, you primarily speak English. Mm. Did this change the way that you perceive interpretation or give you sort of more things to think about? Well, it enacted a certain, a certain fantasy of the interpreter, which is to just translate something else or not say what is being said. Because as, as an interpreter, what you're supposed to do is be extremely accurate. Literally. And, and yes. kind of um, erase yourself in order to give voice to the person who, who, who spoke in the, in the first place. Become this kind of transparent medium. And mm. there can be pleasure in that. Mm. But there's probably also this uh, fantasy of coming forward, kind of fully fleshed, and, and articulate your own discourse and your in, your, the way you read what is being said. And I found that it was very powerful to see that materialize so strongly. Yeah, and and that shows for me the genius of including Auslan too. Yes, I was just which about is, to say that. Yeah. Which is so visibly different to the way that people of other languages speak. There were wonderful moments around Auslan when Nicola Gunn said to Luke, it's like I'm looking at you, but you've got this woman's voice. <laughs> <laughs> Which which shows that, indeed, for people who are not deaf and don't read or understand Auslan, you will often start to blur the voice of the interpreter and the gestural body of the speaker of Auslan into this single text. And there were some quite funny stories. I mean, the, the show's comedy never really lifted beyond the first level, but there were some wonderful little areas of possibility around dating and mm. people people who are deaf going on dates with people who are not and having a sort of awkward third person <laughs> the interpreter yes. in the room. <laughs> how intriguing. Yeah, this uh, – I don't even know how I feel about this piece. It, it was inherently interesting, engaging. We had wine and cheese at intermission. That was lovely. It was conversational in that way. And in terms of the um, performances – position in the site is set festival i think it was nicely site specific yes um i think it was good to use a room like that big beautiful ballroom at the alliance francaise for something that was about language and about culture and about the constraints of those things definitely i just loved everything so the going there different a totally different place to see your work the experience of balmy summer's night you know it was in total yeah the total package. Oh, Julien, you need to go and run a workshop now. <laughs> yes. What's it about? It's on the ethics of translation in the digital age. Oh, <laughs> totes of probes. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank, Thank you. you for having me. It's time for intermission. Or an impromptu intermission, oh. which is what we had yes, at the interpreters. Indeed. Do we I need some like more should... French cheese? Yeah, always. <laughs> it's this time of year where I just feel like my entire diet subsists of cheese and champagne. Yeah, I'm having lots of end of year functions yes. of various shapes and sizes. I do like the idea of a impromptu intermission though. Mm. Like she was like, okay, everyone's sort of chatting. Yeah. Let's just have a quick intermission. Yeah, and yeah. she seemed to enjoy not necessarily <laughs> moving on. So, what else have we been seeing, liking, loving, doing? I think we need to talk about animal. And oh, yes, theatre works. Yeah. Yes, we did head down south to see Animal at Theatre Works. This was the show by Susie D with uh, Kate Sherman and Nikki Wilkes performing. Amazing. Wow. Yeah. 
I will tell you a little funny fact about it. Like, my allergies have been so intense this season, obviously, and I got a swollen eye from the chicken feathers on stage. <laughs> and maybe that's from the four straight guys who were jumping on a tree outside theatreworks. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we had a really wonderful moment. We were in the current climate that we're in. Philip and I were walking to theatreworks, and these really drunk twenty-something guys, white guys, just jumped all over this tree and squashed it to the ground. And this brown man from down the road just said, "Go back to your fucking country, you fucking cunts!" <laughs> and he just like kept right, like seriously, like the Terminator, like stalking yes. him up the road, like I'm talking to you. And it to was see these, epic. yeah, to see these white men running away <laughs> yes, with scrumptious. I know. So this play was absolutely extraordinary, I think, and. If it wasn't for, you know, one person mentioning it to me and then us getting invited along, it would have completely flown under my radar. I would not have known anything about it. And I think that it was one of the best shows of the year. There were no words. There were big tubs. It was highly abstract. Yeah, the set, I wasn't sure that I sort of understood why there was, like, those huge steel crates of, I don't know, like, chemical something. atmospheric. Yeah, but completely no dialogue. Mm a invisible protagonist mm. on stage or antagonist I mm. should say mm. and two girls who were essentially sex slaves mm. I don't know sort of mm. you know super vi- I mean it, it was sort of violence done truthfully because of the abstraction I mean there's so much violence infusing cultural products now but this was violence at its most visceral and true and yet when you think about it concretely it was a pretty abstract way of depicting violence. Well, I think that that's actually where like horror and drama works the most is when you're left, your imagination is left up to fill in the gaps. Um, so, yeah, we didn't have this antagonist on stage, but we were able to see the, 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 effects, the effects of... The, the devastation. Yeah, and mm. the, the, the isolation and, mm. yeah. Why was it called Animal? I think because they were treated like animals. Yeah, and that, like hence the up. feathers and the yeah. smelliness. Yeah, just mm. locked up and mm. slaves Remarkable. like animals are, I mm. guess, for us. On another note, I've been watching the Netflix series The Crown. Oh, <laughs> of course. <laughs> well, not necessarily of course. I pretended to myself that I was just sort of putting my foot in the water. <laughs> now I am deep, deep, deep I've heard it's very good. Elizabeth. Remarkable. Well, it's it's good, and and the reason I think it's good is because they they know that it's style over substance. I mean, this is not reenactment in any kind of historical literal way. This is about costume, scenario, emotion, you know. And the the, the fact that each episode really just shows a tiny little fragment of time, but infuses it with all of the context around whatever event is being shown, is delicious. So you think it's sort of like, uh, you know, imperialist history for dummies? Like, here, look at all of these costumes, and then this is sort of what happened well, in actually, the background. Well, actually, I'm happy you used the word imperialist because now I'm feeling nicely guilty about liking the show because I think it does give you, <laughs> give you your cake. You know, it allows you to sort of glory in highly problematic political scenarios uh, while feeling distant from them historically but it's it's amazing they're apparently going to like keep pushing it until basically the present Ugh. and so they'll need different people to play elizabeth <laughs> i just find them so problematic i don't you know it's like the whole i tried i watched three seasons of downton abbey once when i was yes. six and i just couldn't deal because it was just so not that i want total realism but 
you know, like, yeah. just seriously, come yeah. on. It's this, like, it's this really damaging, I think, fantasist idea. It's like when we were little kids in school, you know, told that, you know, the white people came and made friends with the Aborigines. Like, just down in Abbey was not, like, there's just nothing, you know. Yeah. Those servants would have been treated like shit the whole time. It's it's kind <laughs> of, um, yeah, Jane Eyre without looking upstairs. <laughs> <laughs> I have to tell you two things that I've been loving. Sensitive Skin, which I recommended, I think, right on our first episode. Its second season came out a long time ago, but I didn't know. Uh, it is a Canadian reproduction of an English show. So the, the English show had Joanna Lumley, and I don't know who the male character actor was. But this version has uh, Don McKellar, who is my favourite actor of all time. And uh, the lady from The Sex and the City, the blonde one, Pim Patrell. Hmm. So again, female, mid, mid, mid-50s female nervous breakdown. Absolutely fucking fascinating, wonderful show. So second season is out. And the other show that I absolutely have adored and discovered is called Difficult People. And it's uh, two comedians, friends, and they're just, they live in a world where it's just themselves and they just completely ignore and uh, beguile everybody else around them, including their long-suffering boyfriends and partners and everybody around them. They're vicious and rude and disgusting, and Line I love that them. Up. I, I might, love well, I might them. watch TV this summer. Difficult people. <laughs> I have not laughed uh, that much at something in a long time. It's very, very sort of specific. Like, there's a lot of, you know, theatre reference and very high camp super gay reference so some of it may skim over people's heads but it is also vicious and it just it tickles something inside me I really wish you know someone's saying something really naff to me like oh yeah you know I've been up you know working on the (laughs) woofing for fun Uh and then they're just like no and just turn around and walk away it's like oh you suck Uh yes I'm definitely going to enjoy this yeah so that's that's it for me speaking of enjoyment (laughs) Hot brown honey! Oh my god. Hot brown honey, according to its description, is unapologetically fierce, serving up an audacious platter of dance, poetry, comedy, circus, striptease and song. With set lighting, music and costume to rival Beyonce and at Madison Square Garden, it's political theatre like you've never seen it before. Become one with the hive. Fighting the power never tasted so sweet. Now, show sponsor Jack Sullivan knew what we like (laughs) when he sent us along to this show. It's a team of performers, including people like Kim Busty Beats Bowers, Lisa Falafi, Matar Hareri, Hope Hope One Harmi, Alexis West, Ofa Foltu, and Crystal Stacy. And they move together and apart to essentially call us to arms. Mm. It was a rousing, powerful show. From the moment we entered, they really tried to make it clear that this was political. Mm. Do you want to buy a raffle ticket because we need childcare to run this show? Mm. Um, let's. And that know. the revolution will not happen without childcare. Brilliant. Damn. So I true. need that on a t-shirt. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> it was actually full of fantastic slogans. I mean, I love this idea of fighting the power never tasting so sweet. Yes. That was scrumptious. I also liked the kind of anti-sloganeering of other types of slogans. When somebody tried a bit of Aussie, 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 and a few people went for the oi, Kim said, oh, no, no, you didn't. (laughs) (laughs) So we felt, I think, I felt really 
among the kind of politics which needs to be explored and practiced right now. It was very what's needed from the people who need to be teaching us things. There was a sense of preaching. I mean, the the stage was arranged in such a way that Kim was elevated like some kind of high priestess mm-hmm. of, of the kind of culture that we need to be exposed to. And the level of fierceness and uh, power coming from the stage was such a pleasure to to involve oneself in. And be enveloped by, mm. assaulted by. Mm. <laughs> mm. Uh, and fierce is actually a word that I try not to use anymore because it's just so overused, but this was fierce. Mm. This was in your face yeah. and completely unapologetic, but also had a very wry sense of humour to it. To me, it's, it is it is the definition of burlesque, of what burlesque used to be. Burlesque used to be incredibly political and funny mm. and actually no nudity at all, like the the uh, the uh, illusion of the tease, but, you know, giving nothing away. Mm. Uh, and these women just blasted their power all over us. Girl, this is like going to church for me. This was... <laughs> I came home to my partner and he said, how was it? And I said, that was actually the best thing that ever happened to me in my whole life. Oh, how wonderful. <laughs> yes. I always joke that I'm going to end up on like a feminist separatist macadamia nut farm in far north Queensland. Like that's what's going to happen <laughs> to me. You call it a joke. <laughs> <laughs> but now I'm like, I'm going to go to Hot Brown Honey. Yes. <laughs> that's what happens to me. I, I love how demanding they were when, when this sort of refrain of make noise was practiced and then yeah. repeated and then over time became a kind of mantra for what we need to do politically. Now yes. we actually we do need to be making noise. We do need to Stand be speaking and, 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 and listening to each other. This, uh, this is actually along the, the same sort of power lines as Nikki Lewis P's last episode because it was very lighthearted and funny but extraordinarily powerful and on point. Mm. Like there, and there was a lot of, you know, elderly white people in the audience who – we're having a fantastic time, but I think really would have walked away with something. Yeah, and I feel that that's a, a wonderful connection because the level of earnestness was zero for both shows, which increased their impact politically. I think I think the sort of age of earnestness in terms of theatrical production is past. I mean, it seems pretty 90s now to go to something staid and deliberate about its politics. The places where I am also getting most of my political zing are the comedy shows, the fringe shows, mm. the things that actually want to entertain. You know, you can actually be transformative more easily if you're entertaining people as you do it, I would say. That's what I'm learning from the shows we've seen in well, these last couple of months. That's the Buddhist principle of, oh. you know, delivering <laughs> delivering bad messages through humour. But uh, I, I think that you're 100% correct because in this time where we're sort of drowning as a left and going, what is going wrong? Why can't people see what we're seeing? And, and you know, we're kind of getting this messaging of like, you know, it's too too much of a downer or it's all you ever talk about or you have this kind of elevated sense of yourselves when you're talking about these things and you don't bother to educate people or we already know. And I think that's where the texture of these shows come in because everybody knows this message or everybody's read these messages in the media, whether it's a think piece or, you know, a right-wing piece or whatever. But this show brought so much texture to those messages about privilege, about, you know, the patriarchy, about domestic violence. It gave this whole other element of language around it that I think people could sort of, you know, 
better join the dots and it not be proselytising to them. Yes, and it lacked that kind of meta-commentary that we so often see now in the hot takes of, should I be saying this? Should I be saying this more? Should we stop saying this? Should we say this differently? Are they saying it too much on college campuses? Why don't they understand us? <laughs> and that's what I mean by earnestness, I think. That's what yes, needs to be turned correct. down. Yeah. Um, a couple of things I particularly enjoyed in this show was the bogan white person <laughs> going to Bali dance <laughs> with hula. And an Australian flag bikini. <laughs> Incredible. I think Crystal Stacy was the performer there. I also loved a reverse strip um, in a kind oh, of this was magic. arch camp uh, neo-Polynesian style by Lisa Farlafi. And what, what happened was that like a kind of uh, Chinese mask dance where things are kind of magically happening to her body, she added more and more leaves to her yeah. amazing garment. <laughs> yeah. But also this idea of, you know, like the noble savage of, you know, she was already in her grass skirt and her bikini top and, you know, taking these leaves and bashing them on stage and then, oh, out comes a high heel, <laughs> you know. But in the end, she actually fashioned an outfit out of leaves that was absolutely extraordinary. Yes. So, you know, pivoting that on its head, the act that left me speechless in this show was Ofa Fotu's uh, performance of It's a Man's World. So she sang Stunning Voice, but she sang this song in such a beautiful way in a gollywog costume which was on the surface you think oh that's a bit blunt or grass or whatever but it was so beautiful and seamlessly woven together the two messages it took me like a few minutes to actually realize that it was a proper gollywog costume yeah it just left me speechless Mm. How wonderful. And holding it all together is the really magical um, Kim Busty Beats Bowers, who really um, stole the show again. I mean, they kept taking it from each other, but with this Don't Touch My Hair piece, where Uh, she kind of elevated her hairdo um, to like extreme proportions and then just instructed everybody what not to do with it or to it or about it. Yeah, I think that there were some very good basic messages in here that sometimes get lost. It was pedagogical. (laughs) It was like, you say church, I say school. (laughs) Uh, And all the women have uh, some kind of Indigenous background, which we weren't unable to get everybody's exact origins. And I think in some ways that was part of the way they were presenting, you know, in in a united way as as, as non-white people. Yeah. Uh, We will say like Alexis West, who is the uh, Australian Indigenous performer, did a really beautiful piece wrapped in the Australian flag and had a message of conciliation or reconciliation. Um, You know, in the end she had the Aboriginal flag backed with an Australian flag saying, you know, like we live in this country together, which I thought was incredibly gracious. The way we're talking about this show makes it sound like we spent a day there but it was over in an hour they packed so much into that hour it was it was it was strongly curated and and so memorable all of the images that we're both calling to mind are taking me back into that room amazing stuff two other things all female haka amazing and the set i actually loved the set this big like beehive <laughs> on stage it was like lit up i just am always amazed at things like that when I'm like, how do you even make it spell words? Yeah, yeah, what yeah. is this black magic? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, no pun intended. Fantastic. But, um, yeah, I could not have loved this show more. It was so powerful and hit on, you know, personally, everything that I'm passionate about, particularly super hot black women. So, 100%. <laughs> Thanks so much, Jack Sullivan, Thank you, for Jack. sending us. Coming soon. Summer, apparently. Yes, it's a new year. 
And it's queer. <laughs> How can we make Boo. 2017 not 2016? Midsummer. Oh, yes. Speaking of queer. Midsummer. Oh, yeah. I should have worked harder at that segue. <laughs> it was there. It was there. Midsummer Festival, indeed. So, 15th of Jan to the 5th of Feb, hashtag Midsummer. 30 years. What? Oh, 30 years of celebrating queer culture, says Holy the brochure. Crap. Amazing. That's amazing. Um, so, I mean, I love queer festivals because they are so messy. There's sort of word things, sex things, theatre things, swimming in the river together things. Photography things. It's, 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 it's got that communal element in an authentic way. But in, What are your highlights? Okay, I, I love Ash Flanders. He's, he's got a funny thing. Friend of the podcast. Yep. Fairfax Hi, Studio. It's called Playing to Win and looks terrifying. He's wearing a kind of kitten singlet um, and holding um, boxing gloves and looking hot. He's so, really getting into like the whole body thing lately. Go body, Ash. Body, body. Yeah. Body meets <laughs> body, oddy, oddy. the internet. Yeah. <laughs> um, and look, this is my nerdy one, but there's something called homophonic <laughs> exclamation mark. <laughs> oh my God, I love you. How and do you find these it's, things? It's new classical music by queer composers. That's amazing. La Mama. Oh, at La Mama. Bring awesome. that on. That's the 23rd to the 24th of Jan. Those are my two. Oh, you've got two. Well, I've got mm. 4,000, but um, I'm a big, like, queer history nerd, so I love my queer history. So there's a couple of things. Always, every year, Alga has a queer history walk. Mm. Apparently, they've revamped it. I was on the committee for Alga for many years, so shout out to all my friends at Alga. Uh, if you want to go and have an awesome history walk, and it's usually, I think, they leave from Claremont Street, which is where Alga is. Uh, I highly recommend that. There's also something quite intriguing coming up. Uh, called Silver Threads Podcast. They're going to have a launch at Hairs and Hyenas. So it looks like it's a queer history podcast developed through Melbourne, maybe the city of Melbourne. And about Melbourne. And about Melbourne. History. So it's like Dennis Altman, Dennis Altman Chris Josh Chalkos. That uh, is so exciting. Yes, and I'm forgetting Joan Nessel. How could I forget Joan Nessel? Fabulous. Patron of Alga as well. So that looks awesome. And what else? Let me have a look. Baby Got Back. Big booty lesbians. Basically anything other than the carnival. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, poor carnival. Sadly, I'll be in Sydney. I've only ever volunteered at carnival. I don't think I'd ever go voluntarily, but... I, I do I, I dutifully go. Do you? You know, you know I, I see it as a duty, but I have managed to organise a trip this oh, year. Oh, one more. Stephen Nicolazzo <laughs> is the Happy Prince. So oh, Little One's Theatre. Oh, yes. Yeah, at Theatre Works. Looking oh, forward to that as well. Midsummer looks strong this year. I'm actually really pumped. I reckon we just leave it at that. That's what's coming. Okay. Bring see that. ya. See you there. <laughs> And that's it for our coming-of-age episode. Thank you so much for listening. And thanks to producer Ron, sponsor Jack, and special guest Julien. You can contact Carla and me at us at acrossisle.com. Our Facebook page is Across Isle and our Twitter handle is at Across Isle. In this season of giving, resolving and goodwill, you may wish to support our free podcast with your money. It's easy to do at patreon.com slash across aisle. Thank you very much to all who already support us with little, adorable monthly donations. Mark Barrage made this music, Shaq West made these microphones, and wonderful artists and performers made the shows we saw this month. These theatre makers get our standing ovation. Thank you so much. Without you, we'd have to go to the cricket. (laughs) Happy New Year, everyone. Let's hope it's a good one. Happy New Year. See you next year, everyone.